What an awesome time of worshiping our Lord and Savior. Do you agree, church? God is awesome. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. It is a beautiful, sunshiny day. It has been a very interesting week weather-wise, as we have been bundling up one day and not bundling up the next, but God is in control, amen? Well, scienceofpeople.com, did you even know there was a scienceofpeople.com? There is. Scienceofpeople.com has an entire webpage on the topic of influence. They talk about what influence is, and they give helpful tips on how to be influential. And among these tips are the following. You can read these on the screen. To be influential, read a life-changing book. Learn to meditate so you have greater focus and attention. Speak with confidence in your voice. Learn to be funny. Set your goals and conquer them. Now, these ideas are not necessarily wrong, although I would, I would um, question what you're meditating on. They're not necessarily wrong, but you know what? They were not at the top of Jesus' list. Jesus was influential in simply one way. He was faithful to the Father. Jesus was influential because he was faithful to the Father. He was obedient in what he did. Yes, there was a plan. Yes, God was working behind the scenes. Yes, there was a strategy. But you see, all of that took a back seat to Jesus being faithful to the Father. And I have just two points today, but I, want, I believe that they convey a very powerful truth that Jesus works through whom he will, no matter who they are, or where they come from. That his influence will work in and through people no matter who they are or where they come from because such limitations do not limit our sovereign Lord. His influence will not be thwarted by earthly limitations. He will do what he wants to do through whom he wants to do it. So we're continuing our study in the book of Mark this morning. And we're talking about the extent of Jesus' influence. But before I get to our text, I want to define that word influence so we're all on the same page with today's sermon topic. Influence is defined as this. You can read this on the screen. The capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something or the effect itself. It's the capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something or the effect itself. Jesus had great influence when he was on earth and it was an influence that extends to today. So your first point from our text this morning is this. Jesus' influence extends from an unlikely area. Jesus' influence extends from an unlikely area. Would you join me as I read verses 7 through 7 through 11 again. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. 
and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he, gave strict, and he strictly ordered them not to make it known. You know, the bulk of Jesus' ministry was this little area of Galilee. Yes, he did travel to Jerusalem, and he did travel to a few other areas like Samaria, but he spent the majority of his three-year ministry in Galilee, a small, seemingly unimportant part of the world. And yet, since his time on earth, Jesus' influence has gone far and wide, even to the ends of the globe. In fact, it's very, very rare that you will find someone who has not at least heard of Jesus. His influence is everywhere. Now, as we enter this text today, we're going to come to a new phase in Jesus' earthly ministry. Commentators call this phase the later Galilean ministry. See, up to this point, we've been in what they call the early Galilean ministry. But when we get to this point, there's a bit of a change, and there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, as I've already alluded to, Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide beyond Galilee, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. And secondly, this passage marks something significant because Jesus chooses the 12. So from about chapter 3, verse 7 on into chapter 6, there's a shift going on in Jesus' ministry. Now last time, just to give you some context, the Pharisees were taking steps to destroy Jesus. You might remember that. They're plotting, and because of that, Jesus moves to the Sea of Galilee. That, in fact, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus was aware of what the Pharisees and the Herodians were doing, and that's why he goes back to the sea. But once he gets to the Sea of Galilee, he's met with another issue, crowds. Now, this is nothing new. We've seen this. Crowds follow Jesus wherever he goes, but this crowd is different. Look at me at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now, as we're reading this section, keep in mind, this section is a, basically a summary of Jesus' ministry. What we see in verses 7 through 12, we haven't seen really anything new. Jesus is healing. Jesus is casting out demons. It's really kind of a summary of his ministry. But what is new here is the crowd. There's something different about the crowd. Up till now, we've seen crowds coming from a particular city like Capernaum, or the surrounding area of Galilee. In fact, I have brought a map to show you kind of the general area of where the crowds have been coming from up till now. Just around in that city, in that area of Galilee, they've been coming to Jesus. Now, word has gone far and wide by our text today. People are coming to him now, not only from Galilee, but from Judea and Jerusalem, which are in the south, from Idumea, which is further south and west than even Judea. They're coming to him from beyond the Jordan, which is east of Galilee, and Tyre and Sidon, which are cities northwest of Galilee. So here's another map to show you where they're coming from now. Boom. His fame is spreading, and the landmass that his influence is impacting is just getting bigger and bigger. Remember the four men a couple weeks ago that brought the paralytic 
The people in the crowd, they were crowded around Simon's home to the point that the men couldn't get into Simon's home. They had to come through the roof, and that was a large crowd. Now the crowd is massive. In fact, Mark uses this term, great crowd. He uses it twice in this passage. Throngs of people. And this might be equivalent to the crowd that attends a presidential inauguration. Just thousands and thousands of people flocking to get to Jesus. And there's something different. The people in this crowd are predominantly Gentile. His influence has gone so far and wide that it's not just Jews coming to him anymore. They're predominantly Gentile from these regions. Now let's stop and remind ourselves, why is the crowd coming? Why is he gathering such a massive amount of people? Look with me back at verse 8. He says, halfway through verse 8, when the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. When they heard all he was doing, his miracles... The reason the crowd was coming, the majority of the reason the crowd was coming to him is not because of his teaching, but because of his miracles, because of his healing. Word about how Jesus was able to heal is spreading so far and wide that Jews and Gentiles are like, alike are coming to him mainly to be healed. And they're coming in such vast numbers that it's no longer safe. Look at verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So get this picture in your head. Jesus is by the Sea of Galilee. Massive amounts of people are coming to him. He's been healing, and the demand for Jesus is so severe that he's afraid they're going to crush him. You might remember a few years ago, there was a crowd Uh, at a particular store during a Black Friday, and the crowd was so frantic to get to their desired purchases that they actually trampled a man to death. Crowds are dangerous. Crowds are very dangerous, and Jesus sees what's going on here. He knows that they are desperate, and it says there in verse 10 that they pressed around him, which literally means that they were falling on him that the crowd was so desperate to be healed, they were pressing around him so tightly, people who were sick were determined to get to him, they were falling on him, just just trying to touch him so they could be healed. So he tells his disciples, get a boat ready. And the reason for this is he could get into the boat and he could get away from the shore and away from the crowds if it was necessary. Now, elsewhere in the Gospels, you might remember, Jesus gets in a boat to teach And perhaps he has that in mind here, but from the text, what he really has in mind is safety. I might need to get in this boat to to be safe so I'm not trampled. So he's got the backup plan with the boat. He's healing people. People are falling on him. And there's something else going on. Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. All this is going on. Picture absolute chaos. And demons are falling before him and saying, you are the son of God. Now remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When a demon was in the presence of Jesus Christ, they could not help but announce themselves. They couldn't help. It was just a natural reaction for a demon to announce himself in the presence of Jesus Christ. So they're crying out just like they did before, but they're saying something different. You may remember in chapter one when Jesus encounters the demoniac, the demon cries out, you are the Holy One of God. 
Here in chapter three, the unclean spirits are saying, you are the son of God. Why the change? Well, here's one thought. I told you back in chapter one that it was a common belief in the first century that if you knew the precise name of a spiritual being, you could exercise authority over that being. And I'm not claiming to believe that. I'm just saying that was a common belief at the time. So it could be that the demons here have switched names as an, in an attempt to thwart Jesus' authority. How'd that work for him? Look at verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. Just like before, Jesus essentially tells them to shut up. And he tells them, he rebukes them, he tells them to be quiet. And what is one of the reasons why he might do this? One of the reasons why he might be telling them to be quiet is because he doesn't need Satan or the agents of Satan saying who he is. He doesn't want that. Like I've said, this, what we're looking at, this is an overall summary of Jesus' ministry. These are the kinds of things we've seen before. But let me remind you, what does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he had authority over the physical and the spiritual. Jesus had absolute authority over the physical and the spiritual. There is no malady that Jesus can't heal. And there is no demon he can't exercise. One of, Mark's big, one of Mark's big themes is the authority of Jesus. He's constantly pointing to Jesus' divinity and that Jesus had authority while he was here on earth. He has authority over the physical and the spiritual. He's healing infirmities. He's removing spiritual enemies. That's his ministry. Now follow me on something. What does it mean that Jesus can heal and cast out demons? What does that mean? Well, physical brokenness, sickness, and spiritual brokenness, the influence of the enemy, all result from one thing, sin. Sin has caused the world to be broken. Fallen angels take advantage of sinful, broken people, and we have a mess. We're living in a Genesis 3 world. What is Jesus doing? He's cleaning up the mess. He has authority over the mess. He has authority and his influence is going far and wide because of his authority. His fame is spreading from a little area of Galilee. Now in the first century, Galilee was not viewed as a prominent area, especially to the Jews who lived in the south, who lived in Judea. They actually treated the area of Galilee with a certain level of disdain. You know, some people in our country today might look at other areas of our country with disdain. In fact, you might hear, he'll hear words like hick or hillbilly that someone might use to describe someone they view as subpar. You know, a similar stigma would have been attached to the Jews who live in Galilee. Jesus coming from such an area then is a slap in the face of the religious system of his day because they figured the Messiah would come from a significant place like Jerusalem, I mean, even in our minds, I think it makes sense that the Son of God, the King of the universe, would come from a place of significance. New York, something like that. But no, God chose an unlikely area. He chose Galilee. Why did he do that? Why would he choose such an insignificant little part of the world? Well, if you know your Bible, 
There's a theme that is threaded throughout the entire Bible, and that is this. God chooses the least expected. God chooses the least expected. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, you see over and over and over again, God chooses people unexpected to do his work. Think about Jacob. He was chosen over Esau, though Esau was the firstborn. Leah found favor over Rachel, though Leah was unattractive and unloved. David was the last of eight brothers, the least to be king. This is spoken plainly in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, which reads like this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the small, the seemingly insignificant area of Galilee as the setting for his son's ministry. Not Jerusalem, not Rome, Galilee. And it didn't make a difference where Jesus was. He was making a difference by simply being obedient. Jesus' obedience to the Father made an impact that swept the world. Now you and I, let's face it, you and I will never have an influence like Jesus Christ. Actually, somebody say amen to that. Amen. I don't want to have that kind of influence. I am not Jesus. But you see, it's not the size of our influence that matters. It's our faithfulness. Our success as Christians is not measured by how our kids turn out. It's not measured by how many people we lead to Christ. It's not measured by how many people we witness to. It's not measured by how many children we teach and harvest kids. It's not measured by how many people come to our small group or our Bible study or how we may serve in our home through hospitality. Our success as Christians is measured solely on our faithfulness to the specific call Jesus has placed on our lives. When you look into the eyes of God one day, when you stand before him, he will not say, well done, based on the extent of your influence. He will say, well done, based on your faithfulness to whatever influence he's given you. That influence may be no larger than the members of your family. That influence may be no larger than the, members, than the, than the people that you live next door to. That influence may be no larger than the lost souls you rub shoulders with at work. That influence may be no larger than the people you encourage at church. And God may grow that influence, true, but he may not. Nevertheless, be faithful. Be faithful in whatever influence he's given you. Jesus' influence extends from an unlikely area. Let's look at point number two. Jesus' influence extends from unlikely people. Jesus' influence extends from unlikely people. Join me in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We hit the top of verse 13, and as we've seen in Mark, Mark just abruptly moves from story to story to story, and he does so again. Jesus was by the sea, and now suddenly he's up on this mountain. Now, this is probably, in our reckoning, more of a hill. If you've seen pictures of the Sea of Galilee, it's surrounded by hills. And although Mark says the mountain, it's honestly probably just a generic hill that Jesus came up. But there is significance in that. Because mountains were often associated in the Bible as places of revelation and communion with God. Think back to Mount Sinai. Moses met God there. 1 Kings 19, Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. Significant things happen with God on mountains as we read through the Bible. So Jesus goes up the mountain. And actually, though Mark doesn't talk about it, the first thing that Jesus does here is he prays. Luke chapter 6 tells us that he prayed all night before selecting the disciples. And we saw this back in chapter one. Jesus goes to extensive times of prayer after big ministry moments and before making big decisions. And actually, I would say this is, this is both and here because he just ministered to this massive crowd and he's about to make a big decision about who's gonna be his specific 12 disciples and he goes off and he prays all night. And as we've said a few weeks back, Jesus values prayer even above sleep. And we would do well to follow that model. I'm not telling you, don't sleep tonight, but just that we value prayer. Mark 3.13 tells us, Jesus went up this mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. Jesus is taking initiative here. He's pursuing those he wants for his divine purpose. Now five, we've already been introduced to. We know Simon, we know Andrew, we know James, we know John, we know Levi. He adds seven to that number and he points what we call the 12. And the text tells us that he also named them apostles. See, not all of Jesus' followers, his disciples, not all of them became what we would call apostles. The word apostle means messenger or envoy. It's literally one that is sent forth. This word is used to actually describe Jesus in Hebrews 3.1 and John 17.3 as being sent by God. Jesus now is selecting people to be his apostles whom he will eventually send out to preach the gospel and ultimately establish the church. Now, I want to point out something here. This apostleship, we call it an office, the office of apostleship. We here at Harvest Decatur, we believe that that was limited to a specific group of men. The 12 here were Jesus' apostles. And additionally, the book of Acts tells us that there were others such as Barnabas, who was called an apostle or a messenger of the church. There's a little bit of a distinction there, but still, this office of apostleship was limited to just a few people. And there's some reasons for that. The biggest reason is this. A major qualification to be an apostle was that you had seen the risen Lord, Acts 1, 22 through 24. Since the original witnesses of the resurrected Lord have long since died out, the office of apostleship is no more. It was unique. 
It was unique to the day and it was for a unique purpose to lay the foundation of the church. And I just simply share that with you that that's what Harvest believes because there are people who believe differently that this office is still in existence and God is appointing apostles today, but we don't believe that. Again, this was unique to the time of the disciples and the early church. So Jesus selects 12 and he's doing two purposes here. Look at verse 14 with me. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So they are to be with him. And this was part of the whole disciple-rabbi relationship. They were to learn from him. They were to watch him. They were to imitate him. And they were to carry on his ministry of preaching the gospel and casting out demons. This section of, of Mark that we're in now, the later Galilean ministry, culminates in chapter six. We'll see in a few weeks. In chapter six, Jesus will send out the 12 disciples to do just that, proclaim the gospel and to cast out demons. Now, why the emphasis on casting out demons? Why is that mentioned there? Well, don't forget that Mark focuses on Jesus' authority by granting the apostles the ability to cast out, Jesus, uh, cast out demons, Jesus is authenticating their authority as his apostles. He's granting them this ability to show that they have been given authority by him. It's kind of like a police badge. What does that represent? It represents authority from the state to those individuals to carry out the law. That's what Jesus is doing here. So they're going to spend time, intentional time with him. We're going to see that in the next several chapters. And then in chapter 6, he's going to send them out. And that send them out there is apostello. It's the verb form of apostle. So who are these people? Who are the ones that Jesus has chosen to be his 12 that are going to do, that are going to carry on his marvelous work? I'd like to actually spend some time and go through them one by one. First, we see Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, in the New Testament, there's actually four lists of these 12 that Jesus chooses, four that you can find of these men. And each time a list is given, it's always Simon Peter at the top of the list. He's the spokesman. He's probably the most popular disciple of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives him a nickname, Peter. Now, Peter was Greek for rock, and there's a lot of irony in that, because as you read the account of Peter, he was anything but a rock. He wavered, he was irrational, he often spoke before he thought. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was a coward, and then at the trial, he denied Jesus, and yet, Jesus calls him a rock. Why? <clears throat> Excuse me. As we get to the book of Acts, that's where we see Peter coming into his namesake and becoming a rock. He actually becomes a dynamic preacher for the gospel. So that's Peter. We have in verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. And you may remember in chapter one, Jesus called James and John who left their fishing nets, they left their father Zebedee and they followed Jesus. And he gives them this nickname, Bonergis. That just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It means sons of thunder. It's a composition of two Hebrew words. And there's a little dispute on this. 
but it's likely a nickname meant to convey their hot-headed and judgmental temperament. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, James and John want to call down fire from heaven and consume a village in Samaria for rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is like, no. It's interesting, though. As we look at these nicknames that Jesus gives people, he gave Simon's nickname meant to communicate what Simon would become. He gives James and John this nickname meant to communicate what they should avoid. Nicknames are powerful. Also, something about Peter, James, and John, they were part of what we refer to as the inner circle. Jesus would often take them aside, just the three of them, and he would teach them, or they would go off and they would experience something the others didn't experience, such as the transfiguration. So that's Peter, James, John. Then we get to Andrew. Now, we don't have much in Scripture about Andrew, but something interesting, whenever he is mentioned, he's bringing people to Jesus. It was Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus. It was Andrew who brought the boy with the five loaves and two fish. It was Andrew who brought the Greeks to see Jesus in chapter 12. There's something about his character of bringing people to Jesus. Next, we have Philip. Now, Philip also is mentioned in Acts, and he goes off to do great things for the gospel. But it was him, let me remind you, that in John chapter 14, who said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And then Jesus responds by saying, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me? Now, Bartholomew, this is most likely Nathaniel, who's mentioned in John 1. Something interesting, that people had sometimes different names back then. Sometimes they were nicknames. Sometimes there was a name given them to identify them with a town or identify them with someone else or identify them with, with something else that had happened in their life. So as you're reading, sometimes you come across a different name for the same person. We do some of that today, but it was very significant in the Bible. So Bartholomew is most likely Nathaniel. And let me remind you, Philip found Nathaniel. And when he told Nathaniel about the Messiah, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Matthew we've met, of course. Another name for him would be Levi. He's the tax collector. He worked for Rome, remember. Thomas, we often refer to as Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe in the resurrected Lord unless he put his hand in the side and his finger in the hand. But let me remind you that Thomas had a bold moment in John chapter 11. He encouraged the other disciples to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, though they all knew it was dangerous and that he was likely going to his death. He was the one that said to the disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. Now we have another James here who's the son of Alphaeus. And sad to say, we honestly don't know hardly anything about him. We have Thaddeus. Now, Thaddeus is also likely the other Judas. There were two Judases in, the, in Jesus' disciples, and this is probably the other one. He was known as the son of James, and he was also referred to as Judas, comma, not Iscariot, which is a distinction, distinction I think we would all want if our name was Judas. Now, second to last, we have Simon the Zealot. Some of your Bibles might say Simon the Cananean. Now, don't confuse that. That doesn't mean he's from Canaan. It's actually a Greek word that means zealot. It's been suggested that his title, the zealot, either referred to religious zeal or more likely that he had an anti-Roman mindset, zealous for Israel against Rome. Think about that. You have Simon the zealot, 
and Matthew who worked for Rome. They obviously wouldn't have been great friends. Lastly, we come to one of the most popular apostles, I should say disciples, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now we do know a fair amount about Judas because of his role as the betrayer, but he was given that name Judas Iscariot, which Iscariot likely means man from Kerioth. Kerioth would have been a town, and the whereabouts of that town are now uncertain. But he's mentioned in scripture several times, and when he is mentioned, he doesn't come off as such a great guy. In John chapter 12, it's Judas who questions Mary's act of anointing Jesus' feet with oil. And his attitude is that the oil should have been sold and the money should have been given to the poor. But John points out in his gospel that Judas didn't care about the poor. He cared about the money. In fact, he was in charge of the money bag and he used to steal from it. And of course, ultimately, we know that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. So there we have it. Those are Jesus' choices. Weak, stubborn, hot-headed, doubtful, judgmental, cowards. These are the men Jesus picked. Not only that, they were untrained, uneducated, uninfluential, unlikely candidates for a religious movement. And yet all of these men, minus Judas, changed the world. How? Just like Jesus. They were faithful to what their Savior had called them to do. And I'm sure they always kept in the back of their minds Jesus' last words to them, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It was Hudson Taylor who said this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. They believed Jesus was with them. They were faithful to his call, and despite their shortcomings, they did an amazing work for the gospel. And let's be honest, one reason why we're here today. Now, just like these men, Jesus has appointed you. You were his disciple. He's appointed you to be his representative within whatever sphere of influence he's given you. So let me ask, how are you doing with that? Are you flourishing as a disciple of Jesus Christ or are you stagnant? Are you stagnant in your spiritual growth? Could you be discouraged because you look at yourself and you see your own character flaws similar to the 12? You know, the disciples were the most unlikely men to do what they did. In what ways do we feel like the most unlikely person to do what God has called us to do. Just like the disciples, we are weak. Just like the disciples, we are finicky. And yet, just like the disciples, he has promised to be with us to the end of the age. There is nowhere we can go that Jesus won't be. There is no situation we can get into that he cannot help. There is no person in our lives that he cannot influence through us. There is no circumstance he cannot flip upside down to use for his glory and for his purpose with his power. No human flaw 
can stop the work he wants to do in and through you. As Jesus' influence extended from an unlikely area, his influence extended from unlikely people. In and of themselves, the disciples exhibit nothing the world would find significant. They were nobodies from nowhere. And that should tell you this, that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you are a child of God, if you are faithful to what he calls you to do, he's going to use you right here, right now, in whatever your sphere of influence is. So let me encourage you, however you struggle, whatever limitations hold you back, whatever weaknesses you see in yourself, whatever failures are in your past, whatever you wish was different about you, lay it down at the feet of your Savior. He chose you. All he wants is a life yielded to him. So be faithful and let him handle the rest. Though Jesus lived in a small backwater area, his influence went global. Though Jesus surrounded himself with uneducated, unimportant, and unworthy men, they took the world and turned it upside down with a message that continues to send shockwaves through the continents. This is the power and influence of the gospel. It changes us from the inside out by cleansing our sins, by redeeming our past, and by reshaping our character to reflect him. Jesus has the greatest influence in the world because he has the greatest influence in people. And it started with those 12 unlikely disciples, and it continues today through you and through me. How was Jesus influential? He didn't follow some list on a website. He was influential because he was faithful to his father. Now you go and be faithful to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that 2,000 years ago, you had an impact on a little area of the world that spread all throughout the world and ultimately changed the world. Thank you for the influence you had on those 12 men whose lives were changed because of you. And then you, they took your message of life and they proclaimed it until it spread everywhere. Lord Jesus, use us today to proclaim that same message right where we are. Strengthen us to influence those around us with the truth of the gospel for your name's sake. Work in and through us for your glory. Help us to be faithful so that others come to know you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.